We are here today with a very special episode of the Path to Follow podcast. This is going to be under special topics, and I'm talking today with Mr. Mike Molina, the Director of Inclusion Inclusion and Equity here at Gilman School, about the issue of affirmative action, but really more so our experiences, Mike's at Yale Law School and my own at Harvard, uh, as students and, and as an athlete myself, and what went into admission into these prestigious institutions. And I think what we want to do today is talk live before our students here at Gilman about the idea of excellence, what it takes to be admitted into prestigious universities and, uh, and law schools, and really what schools like Gilman prep schools, colleges, and grad schools are trying to do as they put the pieces together of their their classes. So thank you, Mr. Sikanti, for filming this episode. It's our first live episode of Path to Follow. Thank you to all our listeners, and I hope you enjoy. I'm very lucky to be joined today with Mr. Mike Molina. Uh, Mike's been on the podcast, the podcast that Mr. Sikanti and I do here at Gilman a couple of times now. And a couple months ago, he, he approached me and said, uh, I'd like to have a conversation with you about your experience in undergrad at Harvard playing lacrosse. And the issue of affirmative action came up, and we started talking about that a little bit. And we've had multiple conversations since, Mike, about affirmative action and what it means to go to a school like Gilman, like Yale Law School, like Harvard, and uh, what my experience was like there, what, what yours was like at Yale Law School. And we thought we'd share our stories a little bit and engage in some dialogue here live, first Path to Follow podcast live uh, for the student body. So thank you guys for being with us and welcome, welcome to the show. All Mike, right. I'll hand it over to you. Well, Mr. Scott, thank you so much for uh, making this possible. Um, Chessa Ray, thank you so much for all of the tech uh, ability here. So you all are, are uh, in upper school. And so one of the privileges you all have is that we can talk to you about subject matter that's way more complex than we can with middle school and lower school. Uh, one of the responsibilities you have with that privilege is to be critical thinkers, is to be thoughtful, is to be able to dialogue, maybe even disagree respectfully so that you can learn from each other. Not to convince each other, but understand each other. And Mr. Scott and I have had a journey with our conversations about this subject matter that we wanted to just exhibit for you all what it's like to learn from each other and, and share in an experience um, together learning. Let's see if this is going to work. There we go. All right. So can't have any sort of opportunity to converse without giving you all information that could be helpful and useful. So just by way of a groundwork, ground basis for understanding, I'm going to share a little bit about affirmative action, what it is or was why it was, and so what? Why is it relevant to talk about? So um, here's a definition for you. Affirmative action is a set of procedures designed to eliminate unlawful discrimination 
among applicants to jobs or schools to remedy prior discrimination and prevent future discrimination. I've highlighted a couple of things here. Procedures means that affirmative action is a range of approaches to, uh, uh, to any sort of remedy, right? So it may involve admissions, but it also may involve recruitment. It may involve, uh, you know, going out and seeking uh, an audience with a certain sector of society to make sure that they apply to a school or to a job. Um, it's not one thing or another. Uh, the, the purpose of affirmative action is to eliminate unlawful discrimination. That means that there must be lawful discrimination. And so you understand sometimes in employment in particular, you must discriminate to some extent. In law school, we learned a lot about fire uh, people. And in certain contexts, you have to be able to fulfill a certain physical uh, requirement in order to do the job of a fire person. And so there is a sort of discrimination that happens there, but it's a lawful discrimination to say, you can only do the job if you can do these certain physical tasks that are required of you to do the job. So affirmative action was set, was uh, imagined to eliminate unlawful discrimination. These are applicants, right? This is only people who are um, possibly uh, 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 meeting the requirements to have a job or a school. Um, and um, it's to remedy past discrimination. So let's go through a little bit of that. The U.S. has a long history with race-based discrimination. It has swung between progress and, and, um, and challenge. You can go all the way back to the Constitutional Conven Convention and the three-fifths three clause. That's discrimination based upon uh, race in which some people are categorized as three-fifths of a person for the, for the uh, reason of voting uh, demographics. Um, from 1804 to 1877, many colleges across the nation began to admit students, African-American students in particular, who had been discriminated against. So going all the way back into the 19th century, uh, people started uh, moving forward um, in terms of the ability for folks to attend schools. Fourth Eighth Amendment creates this uh, equal protection due process clause, which means all citizens have equal rights. Um, in 1882 and 1896, we, we have the Chinese Exclusion Act and Plessy versus Ferguson, which legalized discrimination upon race, one in, one in the immigration context, one in the social and economic context. Moving forward, there are many different experiences that the U.S. has in terms of uh, judicial, legislative, and executive branch involvement in either promoting discrimination or uh, trying to remove discrimination. Ultimately, for the uh, purposes of affirmative action, a series of Supreme Court cases, Bakke, Grutter, uh, Fisher, um, and the most recent, uh, Students for Fair, uh, uh, Fair Admissions Policies versus Harvard uh, in 2023, the Supreme Court essentially uh, and effectively removes race-conscious uh, uh, admissions policies from campuses. So what we know is affirmative action is no more. So if it's no more, so what? Why are we gonna talk about it? Well, this is a recent um, illustration to talk a little bit about the, some of the confusion and unfortunate uh, misrepresentation that occurs around affirmative action. Here you see a line of people each of whom gets a certain kind of uh, access to admissions based upon who they are. We have a daughter of an alum, a son of a big donor, a soccer player, on and on. 
Um, but you, then you see a person who didn't get in very angry, and that person is pointing at the one person, uh, the minority person there, and blaming that person for why they didn't get in when there are these other folks who were also given um, a sort of uh, preferential admission into school. So the purpose of this, to show this, is to say, even though affirmative action is no more, it stirs up a lot of emotion. It stirs up emotion in students and parents, even in faculty, because it essentially asks who is worthy. When we talk merit, the question is who is worthy of the access to this wonderful opportunity of going to a university? And that can stir up a lot of, lot of emotion. So in order to handle that, talk about it, and engage it in a way that's thoughtful, Mr. Scott and I are gonna just share a little bit about what it's like to actually go through some of those processes. Awesome. Um, everyone still hear me? Good. So Mr. Molina, let's start out with just a little bit of our background. And I'd love to ask you kind of about your, your process, undergrad and, and Yale Law School, and what made you want to go to law school? What made you want to attend a school like Yale University in the first place? Uh, I'm foolish. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Uh, applying to a school like that is, is ambitious and it, and it was something that uh, wasn't on my radar when I first entered school. Uh, I went to an HBCU, Xavier University of Louisiana in New Orleans, and um, you know, this is a school of humble beginnings, you know, and, and you go there uh, aspiring to make something of your life. Um, but sometime around my junior year of college, um, I was doing extremely well and um, a graduate of Xavier who had gone to Yale Law School uh, was asked by admissions people at Yale Law to go and find students who might apply from an HBCU. They, didn't, they weren't having lots of African-American students apply. And so they asked someone who had graduated from Yale Law to go back to his school and see if he could find someone. So he came back on campus, talked to Dr. Berman, who was the chair of the philosophy department, who was one of my favorite teachers. I was a philosophy minor and asked him, did he have any really promising students? And Dr. Berman, um, bless him, named me. And so he called me in to sit down and talk to, his name was Don Tellock. Um, he, he's, a, he's a judge now in New York. Um, and I sat with him for about 30 minutes. And at the end of that conversation, he said, I think you should apply to Yale Law School. And I was like, okay. And uh, I applied, and my, my original goal for going there was wanting to change the world. I didn't know what type of lawyer I might be. I didn't know exactly what I would use the degree for, but I just wanted to do something that would impact the world. Um, and that was, that was my kind of dream. And so I'm curious about you. You know, what, what opened up doors for you to think about going to Harvard, and what was that process like for you? Yeah, so I... As, as some of you guys know, some lacrosse players in here know, I, I was born with a lacrosse stick in my hand. My dad played lacrosse at Hopkins right down the street. I've been coming down to Baltimore pretty much my entire life to go to Hopkins lacrosse games. And I've always loved the, the game. I've loved the sport forever. Um, and lacrosse, I, I could not have gotten into Harvard without the sport of lacrosse. Lacrosse really helped me. I had great grades. I did well on my SAT score, scores. You know, I had tutoring, just like many of you, for the SAT to get even better scores on that test. But lacrosse opened so many doors for me going to college. Um, I was a recruited athlete, and you know, when when Harvard 
looked at me when I visited the school and walked around and the coach gave me an offer there, there was no doubt in my mind. I was like, this is the best school, you know, in the world, many say. And uh, there, was, there was no other option for me. So the question of like, why did you choose that school? I was looking at some other schools. I was looking at Hopkins, looking at Yale a little bit, looking at Penn. I'm, I'm from outside of Philadelphia, but there was no other option. I, w I wanted to go to Harvard and it was a blessing. I mean, it was a total privilege for me to be able to use a sport and, and have a sport help me get into that school. And so once you were there, being a student and an athlete, you have like dual duty, right? You have this athletic responsibility that's taking lots of time, energy, focus, you know, your whole life force. And then you're at Harvard, right? So you're in class in an extremely competitive environment. What was it like for you, you know, being there? I think a lot of you guys are playing sports here at Gilman and you're thinking about the next level, maybe playing a sport in college, and I think that's awesome. I, uh, I, was, I was, again, privileged to be able to be on the lacrosse team for four years at Harvard. When you get to college, your understanding of your sport changes completely. I mean, I was, you know, I was a good player in high school. I loved the game. College is a whole different beast. You know, it takes up your entire day. Uh, I went to class in the morning. I had maybe two, three classes, lectures, section discussions, ate lunch, and I thought about my day starting around three o'clock when I went to practice for about five hours. You know, you've got two and a half hours of practice, you've got film, you've got lifting, you've got team meetings. It's, a, it's really a full-time job, and you know, that, that, that was surprising to me a little bit because I, I've always been kind of a nerd. You know, I love the classroom. You, you guys who took taken my classes lo know I love books and talking about English. At points during my college lacrosse career, I thought, I can't, you know, I wish I had some more time to go have lunch with a professor and work on my essay a little bit more and read a couple more books. But the sport took up a lot of my time, which was a blessing and a curse in different ways. And how that, about, how yeah. about you, Mike? When you went to Yale Law School, what was that experience like when you were actually there? Were your expectations, did, did your expectations align with the reality of it was that place? Super intimidating. I would I walk on campus. I went two years after I graduated, so I'm 24, almost 25 years old. And I'm in class with people who have started and sold businesses. I'm in class with people who have done whole military careers. Um, I was in class with a, um, a general in, the, in the, uh, uh, the IDF. I was in class with people who had had families, right? There were people in their 30s. Um, and all of these people are super smart. They're all ambitious. They're all uh, confident. And you sit in the classroom as someone who's on the much younger side, and you wonder if I open my mouth right now, you know, am I going to be laughed out of the room? Am I going to be, you know, uh, made fun of? But, but um, the real fear is like you open your mouth and you reveal something you fear about yourself going in. And so, you know, imposter syndrome is something you may, may or may not have heard of. But walking on a campus like that, you know, you see presidents on the wall, you see Supreme, current Supreme Court justices on the wall, you know billions of dollars have walked these halls, you know uh, Nobel Peace Prizes have walked these halls. And I'm like, who am I? Like, <laughs> I'm just a kid 
son of a teacher from New Orleans. What am I doing here? And, and so the fear of, of like looking some kind of way was really about an internal fear that some, something inside me uh, might be exposed if I don't live up to what everyone else looks like they're doing or what they can accomplish. So that, you know, that was an internal struggle for me. And there were a lot of other students who struggled with it. Some of them didn't finish. Some of the people who felt like that imposter syndrome could not handle being in that environment um, and, and left. You know, I had, a, I had a friend who took some of his scholarship money, bought a speed bike, and never, <laughs> got on the highway and never came back. And um, I, I laughed a little, but it's, it's not funny. Um, did end up finish, that guy did end up finishing law school somewhere else, so I want to give him respect and praise for that. Um, but it was tough. It was tough to sit in those classrooms. Did you ever feel any sort of imposter syndrome as, as an athlete um, at Harvard? I think, I think I felt that a little bit before going to college. When I was in high school, you know, you guys can imagine, I'm sure you have friends who are committed to schools. I was committed going into my junior year of high school. So I'm sitting in class already knowing I'm going to school. I already know this, verbally commit, committed, just had to keep my grades up, continue to improve my SAT, but I felt like other students in my class, rightfully so, were maybe like, oh, this guy just plays lacrosse and he almost gets a leg up to go to, go to this school. Um, and I always felt like playing a sport or doing something different was, was sort of a, a merit kind of thing. Like I, I had that attitude in high school, like I didn't feel like I didn't deserve it. I maybe thought to myself as a high schooler, like I've spent, you know, 10,000 hours of my left hand playing against the wall. I, I felt like I deserved something for that, uh, that work I put in. And, you know, I think Harvard was still, it's still like, oh my God, like I'm going to this university, that's the best school in the world, right? I still felt that, but I, I maybe pushed back on other students in my high school class who looked at me or talked about me like this guy, I had to watch myself. Every time I said something slightly stupid in high school, which I probably did a lot, people would be like, this guy's going to Harvard? Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I felt a sense of, look, I've, I've worked for this. I've worked my whole life playing this sport. I feel like I've done enough to deserve this opportunity at least. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I, feel, I feel I'm glad to hear that, number one. And I also, I relate to that because it, in in that imposter syndrome kind of voice in my head when I was there, there was another voice in my head that was like, you know, knew how hard I had worked in undergrad, knew how well I'd done on the LSAT, knew how good my essays were to get in, knew that in those classes when I did speak up, I was clearly intellectually capable. And, you know, the thing that worried me a little bit, you know, uh, in, in, in those two voices was, what is the overall perspective on me being here, right? Like, what, do, uh, what does it mean that I'm at a school like this, one of, in my class, seven African-American men? Like, what is expected of me? What's, you know, uh, what's assumed about me? Um, and I, like you, I pushed back on boundaries and, and ex expectations that I would do anything or not be able to do something else. And, from an early, you know, from early on in my career, you know, started volunteering in schools and working with a program called Umoja and 
you know, not necessarily taking the typical route law students take at a school like that, go and make a billion dollars or become president or become a Supreme Court justice. But my original dream of wanting to change the world became my anchor. Mm -hmm. You know, like that was the reach, but it was also the root of everything I did there. And so all of that volunteering and getting out in the New Haven and working with kids gave me a perspective that, that kind of made me a little bit insulated from caring too much about what a professor or other students might, you know, think of me. So, um, you know, I can relate to having that, that memory or that, that rooted kind of sense of you worked for this, you know, you earned it. Um, and me feeling as well that not only did I earn it, but I'm here for a great reason. I'm here to, you know, uplift people and do something positive in the world. Yeah. yeah. I, I think a little bit about the last couple of weeks have gone by and, and Harvard's president was fired. Claudine Gay was fired. I, I think mostly because of the Senate hearings that happened, the congressional hearings that happened uh, with relation to Israel and Palestine conflict conflict and the, the questions she was presented there, but also because of some, some plagiarism and, and you hear people talk about, well, this person didn't deserve this because she's a black woman and she was maybe hired because of affirmative action policies. And in one of our previous conversations, you said, you know, that, that offends me that people are saying that about a person. And I, I, I see that because I think it's very hard to say, oh, you got to this place in your life. You didn't deserve that. I don't think anyone can say that about someone else. But kind of getting into the discussion about affirmative action, like, do you think if there are race-conscious hirings or ad admissions, don't you think people will always be able to say about someone, you didn't deserve that because of these affirmative action policies? Well, I think that kind of race consciousness predates affirmative action, right? Like, uh, the assumption that you know, certain people, whether it be women who weren't allowed, who didn't have the right to vote until 1920. Why? Is it because people hated women? No, it was because they thought women weren't intellectually capable of making a good decision as a voter, they being people, uh, you know, the kind of patriarchal power structure in America, right? Um, the notion that, particularly in my case, African-American people have less intellectual capacity pre-exists affirmative action. It was built into, you know, uh, policy in, um, in uh, you know, federal policy, state policy, local policy, uh, and Jim Crow South, all of this stuff, right? But to get a, kind of get away from the historical perspective on it, the reality is someone like a Claudine Gay who, um, you, know, uh, you know, got into a role as president of Harvard doesn't get an opportunity to get a role like that unless they have shown a lot of capacity. Now, I don't know anything about citing sources and what she was accused of in terms of intellectual uh, um, integrity. But I do know that you don't get a shot as president of Harvard unless you've shown a, an exceptional capacity in some regard. And um, the race consciousness of a policy or a procedure um, in, in an affirmative action context is really to try and address the previous race consciousness that blocked people from even having those opportunities. So, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that we, we talked about was like, well, what is the, what is, we, we want meritocracy, right? We want it such that the content of a person's character is what determines, you know, the access they, they, they get to opportunities. Um, what's 
the best way to get there? Is it SAT scores? Is it um, some other kind of metric? Do we just turn it over to AI to AI scan, you know, scan every student in the country and tell us the ones who will make it at Harvard, right? Um, or, or is there some kind of some kind of mix of qualities that we would want to look for? And is there a mix of kind of types of people that we would want on the campus so that there's a robust dialogue and conversation happening? Right. Right. I've been thinking about that a, a lot. And, and one of our Gilman Five qualities that we strive for is excellence. And I think, you know, a lot of you guys, a lot of teachers, a lot of faculty here walk around all day with this idea of excellence in their head. What does it take for me to be the best, be the best student, get the best SAT scores, be the best wrestler on my wrestling team? Right? You guys think about that all the time. But I also want us to think about like what are schools like Gilman, what are we trying to do? What is this place for? What is Yale Law School for? What is Harvard for? Is it just for people who have the best grades and the best SATs? Is that why you, you go there? Or is it trying are, are these institutions trying to do something different along the lines of merit, but also along the lines of forming a community? And I think, you know, sports is a great analogy for this, right? Because on your lacrosse teams, you know, clearly at a school like Harvard or some of the higher level lacrosse programs, what's, what's like the top program? Is it Harvard? It's not, right? It's where? Probably Virginia right now. Virginia, Virginia. okay. At a school like Virginia, um, in a, on a, to form a great lacrosse team, what kinds of different skill sets do you need among those teammates? Is, is everyone just the biggest, strongest, fastest person, you know, is that what they're looking for? What are they looking for to make a great team, a lacrosse team? And I'm, I'm, I'm not a lacrosse, I'm not indigenous to lacrosse. <laughs> I, I grew up where it was football and, and, and lacrosse didn't exist. Well, it's a great way of thinking about it. I mean, I, I think any sports team, and you guys who play sports know, is a puzzle, right? right? You want the best pieces in the puzzle. You want the people who can put the ball in the net. You want the biggest, strongest defenseman. You want the best goalie in the country. Virginia gets the best recruits in the country every year. I mean, it's just a, it's, but how do you rank that, first of all? I mean, I, I think they know that they get the best recruits in the country, but I also think that there are intangibles to any organization. You know, uh, when I was getting recruited, there was a coach who said, you know, yeah, you've got, you put, you score the ball, your, you, you know, your grades are good, but I also watched your highlight tape and you gave everyone a high five after they scored a goal. Right, and that that clicked with me. That's a positive memory for me because I never really thought about what it means to be a good teammate and how important good teammates are on a team, and maybe in an organization and maybe in a school. Right, if you guys were all just really really smart and spent all your time studying in your rooms all the time, would Gilman be Gilman? No, you need people who interact with each other and have have fun a little bit and have sense of humor and are good teammates and watch out for each other. And I think those ingredients are also considerations at these organizations. And I think, of, I think about football, right? And what, I love football. And, and football to me is like 10-dimensional chess. You think of all the different factors that make football uh, a game or a team work. You know, you got referees, you got terrain, you know, what does the field look like? You got whether the, the, the crowd is on your side, you got the weather, you got how, you got injuries, you had, um, you know, offense, defense, special team uh, game planning, you got 
uh, you know, uh, any number of factors that you have to consider. But it's also an ultimate team sport, right? Because there is no way one individual can dominate a football field. And then I think about Tom Brady, right? And I think we would all agree that's the best, Tom Brady is the best quarterback that, is, is, does anybody feel differently? I mean, do we have to have that conversation? Okay, all right. There, there's always one. Joe Montana. Joe Montana, okay, I, I, I can feel that. I think we're showing our age to even consider that, but I did ask. Um, but is Tom Brady the fastest? Does he have a good 40 time? I don't think so. Was he, was he drafted high? No. Uh, does he have the strongest arm even? I would say Jeff George probably had a stronger arm. Y'all probably don't even know who that is. Uh, but Tom Brady had a mix of qualities, right? Some of them leadership, some of them overcoming, being drafted low, overcoming the slowness of his physical uh, capacity. Um, and, and so when, when you think about what excellence might look like in, an in like sports, there's that quality of like, of course, speed, strength, coordination, all those things. But there's something that can't be quantified that goes into greatness, right? And when I think when a school like Gilman tries to fill up a room like this full of young people who are going to influence each other and push each other and encourage each other, the more mixture of different type of people you can bring who have different skills, backgrounds, experiences, perspectives, hopes, dreams, the more mix you can create, the more rich that conversation ends up being. So a school like Harvard is not looking for everyone with a per perfect SAT and all the, the kind of perfect metrics. They want a mix of people who, who uh, believe in different things. And like you, when I applied to, uh, to Yale, I wrote, you know, I wrote my essay, one of my essays, about growing up in New Orleans with a mom who was a teacher. And when I was 13, her taking me to the, special, you know, the kids in, in the special education classes she taught and what it revealed to me about how privileged my life was, even though we weren't wealthy and my dad, you know, was, was uh, not in the home. Uh, it was, you know, I, I wrote about struggling. I, I wrote about climbing out of that to, to get into college. I wrote about, you know, working all throughout college, which I had to do, delivering pizzas and washing dishes and all kinds of stuff. And, and I think what they saw in me, what Yale saw in me wasn't a black guy. What they saw in me was someone who worked through difficulties, someone who wasn't cowed by hard times, someone who would stick it out and be determined. And that played out when I got there. I mean, I had a lot of challenges. I, my mom passed away my beginning of my second year of law school. And it was very, would have been easy for me to just say, oh, well, <laughs> I can't do this. Um, but that determination uh, is what drove me through. And I think that's the kind of excellence quality of Tom Brady shows. Uh, uh, Jake Scott shows that makes, you know, you get recruited for Harvard and, and me get into Yale. I think, I think a lot of what we are, are talking about is your story, you know, and I, I'm, I've been really trying to work with my English 11 students this year, crafting stories. And I think if there's one thing for you guys to take away from our discussion today about affirmative action, we got into it a little bit, but really, affir when you're trying to put together an organization, I think stories matter. And whatever your story is, right, whether you're playing a sport, whether you grew up going to this school and you love it so much, whether you face a lot of adversity in your life, you being able to convey that story to wherever you want to go in life is so important. And 
That's why you need to focus up in English class. But, yep. but also because I think it's important for you guys, whatever you do in life, when you, go, you, know, when you apply to a job, your story matters. And I think that's really the core of this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you guys for being a great audience. <laughs>